This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. What's up, champs, and welcome to another installment of the Short Shifts Podcast. I am your host, Ben Burnett, and joining me, not as always, as a very special guest, the host of the Keeping Carlson Podcast, Elon Dubrovsky. Elon, how are you, my friend? Hey, Ben. Doing well. Nice to talk to you. Hope everything is going well over there in your new home in New Brunswick. You, you switch. You used to always be behind me on the time zones. Now, all of a sudden, you're ahead. I know it's uh, I'm getting sleepy over here when before I was just, you know, getting into the uh, ready to burn the old midnight oil. So uh, <laughs> it's a big change for me. Uh, yeah, the reason I wasn't on the last couple of short shifts podcast was because I was in the middle of a move. And so thank you for covering for me and hanging out with Lewis at that point. I'm sure that he treated you well when you were on the show then. Yeah, and also, by the way, big shout out to Lewis, the other short shifts co-host who just had Ezekiel number three. Three Ezekiel. <laughs> so congratulations to Lewis and hope yeah. everyone's doing well there. And obviously we hope all the listeners are doing well with all the, the COVID stuff. Uh, just take a load off, listen to Keeping Carlson, don't worry about it. I think we've got a, a fun show for you today. That's right. Of course, best wishes to anyone who's going through it right now. We are all in it together and hopefully that you guys are, you know, listening to this while practicing safe physical distancing and uh, self-isolation, all of that good stuff to help flatten that curve or plank that curve, whichever hashtag we're going for these days. Like Elon said, we've got some fun content planned, and this was actually an idea that Elon came up with himself, so I'm going to throw it over to the man himself, get him to explain sort of what we're looking at doing tonight. All right, so we've got a two-part episode plan because short shift. It's going to be weird for me, Ben, to try to keep this like a half-hour show. So we're going to record for an hour and then split it up into two shows. Basically, I made a spreadsheet. I was thinking about like where, who are the players who had a big difference between the first half of the season and the second half. And obviously, the halves got cut a little bit. So I'm looking at around till December 17th. I'm counting that as like the first half of the season, so around 35 games. And then from December 18th until the season ended. And I was just thinking, like I made a spreadsheet, and I'm actually going to share that uh, if you go to keepingcarlson.com slash splits, I haven't made that yet, but that'll exist by the time you're listening to this. Uh, you could see the spreadsheet, and I sort of just like looked through which players had the biggest differences between the first and second halves, and I thought that maybe we could go through some of these players and try to figure out, you know, what changed, what went wrong, or what started to go right, and then maybe try to predict which is the more act like real version of the player or maybe it's just going to be somewhere in the middle uh so yeah that's the plan and we've got a pretty fun list of players today so how about we could start this episode with the green boys as i call them in the spreadsheet (laughs) that's the the players who did better in the second half and then in the next episode we could talk about some players who who tanked and were doing really well and then all of a sudden disappeared so i'm thinking it's like a first halves and a first have nots there it is. <laughs> that's a that's a little pun for you. 
<laughs> so how about the first one? I want to talk about Ryan Nugent Hopkins, who we're all remembering him as our MVPs leading into the playoffs. But uh, if you uh, remember the, how the season went overall, it wasn't a great start for RNH in his first 30 games. So again, through December 17th, only 18 points. That's a 49-point pace. That's like not rosterable in a lot of leagues. I bet you he was dropped in a lot of fantasy leagues. And that was a great opportunity for anyone to grab him because then for the final 35 games he played, 43 points. So it's on a 101-point pace. So he ended the year with 61 points in 65 games. Uh, but yeah, he was pacing for over 100 for the second half of the season. So RNH totally exploded. And obviously, the reason that comes to mind for me as to why is because he was playing with Dreisaitl. And that line also then with Yamamoto for a bit just went crazy. Is it as simple as that? Uh, like, And also, I'd love to know. Yeah, So Ben, what, what, what's your thought on RNH? And which is the real version now going into next year? I think, and this is something, you know, you and I have kind of gotten into this about players who are on hot or cold streaks in the Keeping Carlson patron-only Facebook page, but I think with RNH, it is something where the full season picture really shows sort of what his true talent probably is more likely. Now, having said that, I do think that playing with uh, Dreisaitl and Yamamoto over a full season could put him above a point-per-game pace. I, I can't remember if you mentioned this, but 77-point pace on the season through 80, uh, an 82-game pace, so obviously he was just a little bit below that 82 point threshold but you know you could see him hitting that just because of the virtue of who he's playing with I think the other big thing with RNH this year and this is something that we we really got to see with uh with coach Tippett in his first season in Edmonton he is not afraid to overload that power play one Ryan Nugent Hopkins playing nearly four minutes per game on the power play 84 percent of the power play time in Edmonton so obviously that was not a concern for Tippett and I think that that bodes really well for the fantasy owners of players like RNH, Dreisaitl, uh, obviously McDavid, but also a guy like Oscar Clefbaum, who saw sort of had a better opportunity on that power play one. The question will be whether or not a guy like, I don't know, Kyler Yamamoto's name came up. I think that he would be a, a really interesting guy in the same tier of like a 70 plus point player next year if he's able to be on power play one as well because just the way that they're willing to roll those guys so i know we started out talking about ryan nugent hopkins but i do think that yeah 70 75 plus points is definitely in the uh, reasonable take for him and then another guy who i think is interesting moving into next year is yamamoto i think that he's somebody who you could probably get at a discount who represents you know huge value to you next year yeah, definitely. And Yamamoto will be an interesting guy. For Nugent Hopkins, I will point out that I like a good reason to think that this 77-point pace that he ended up on is a reasonable expectation going to next season, which, by the way, would have been a career high for him. So he was having a career year mostly buoyed, like I said, by this second half, uh, though he did have some favorable numbers. So as part of the spreadsheet I made, I put in all the good stuff that Brian likes to bring up. So, you know, shooting percentage, mm-hmm. on-ice shooting percentage, IPP, which is the percentage of goals that were scored on the ice— that you got a point on, like while that you while you were on the ice, and I'm seeing here that basically uh, RNH had it all much better in the second half. He was having maybe some bad luck in the first half, so he only had an 8.5 shooting percentage in the first half compared to 14.62 in the second half. So he was taking a few more shots per game, actually. So he was helping himself, but also definitely benefiting from more of those shots going in. He was also like he had a higher on ice shooting percentage, which maybe was benefited just by his own shooting percentage on his own. He had a higher IPP, which maybe came from play 
playing with Drysaddle because of course when you have McDavid and Drysaddle on the first line, which is how half the season started, you know that left Ryan Nugent Hopkins with like kind of nobodies. Like you had your James Neal or someone like that that was going off for a little bit, but mostly on the power play. So I just wonder if, uh, yeah, in the end, it might have been a bit of luck. Like, I don't know if he's a 100-point player, though. If he's playing with Dreisaitl for a whole season and Yamamoto, maybe it could happen. Still someone I would be a little bit nervous about drafting as, like, a 75-plus point guy next year, just because what if they put McDavid and Dreisaitl back together again? That would then leave RNH out in the cold. I guess we just have to hope that that won't happen. What, what do you think? If you had to bet right now, do you think Nugent Hopkins spends most of next season playing with at least one of McDavid or Dreisaitl? Or do you think there's a good chance he gets split from them again? I think there's a better chance he does play with them again. You mentioned his IPP as being a little bit unsustainable in the second half, but that's why I like looking at these full season numbers because when you look at the full season, he has a 59% IPP on the year that's fully sustainable. So to me, I, I think you're right to bring up the fact that if he were split from Dreisaitl, he immediately becomes kind of that 50, 55, high 50 to 65 point uh, floor player. And that, that becomes a lot less appealing. But that's why you're not drafting him with the, the Dreisaitls and the Connor McDavid's, right? Because you do have to bake a little uncertainty into that projection. So I would I would be drafting him as a 75-point guy for next year. And, and maybe the, you know, obviously the unfortunate stoppage of play gives a little bit of uh, leeway to his draft stock next year because the way that he was pacing, it looked like he was going to definitely get up into the 80 points by the end of the year. So that's something that you could keep an eye on as we uh, as we get into next year's draft season. Yeah, and obviously as drafts come up, this is like in a million years from now, but uh, <laughs> you would think that we'd learn something in training camp at least about how the season's going to start with the lines. Okay, let's go to our yeah. next green boy here. Uh, how about William Nylander on the Leafs? So we all recall last year, you know, he sat out for a lot of the season waiting on that contract and we came back. Not a good time. He had only 27 points in 54 games. Huge disappointment for people who held on to him the whole time. This season then started. Everyone thought that Nylander was going to do a lot better and it didn't start especially well. He had 24 points in his first 35 games for a meager 56-point pace. Not bad, but not fantastic. And then the second half happened, and again, because he's a green boy, he went off. He had 35 points in his final 33 games, uh, which is over a point-per-game pace. And all of a sudden, William Nylander became someone that anyone who held on to him during those hard times was loving having him on their roster. And so, Ben, how would you get, get the first crack? At the end of the day, he ends up with 59 points in 68 games. That's a 71-point pace, which, again, is a career high. His 59 points almost beat his career high already even in only 68 games so do you have a sense of which was the real Nylander and which was the fake I think that there are a few really key positives when it comes to Nylander's numbers you look at the, those shots on goal nearly hit 200 in only 68 games had 18 minutes in time on ice a full two and a half minutes higher than his previous best the shot, the shooting percentage is a little high for me. So I definitely don't think, you know, whatever he's on pace for, the high 30s there. I don't count on that. Although when you watch his game, he's scoring a lot of goals around the net and those are high leverage opportunities. So I, I, I'm generally of the belief that we're seeing the real William Nylander in the sense that he is a breakout star on the Toronto Maple Leafs. I just don't think that he's going to hit those like those Mitch Marner, those Austin Matthews level, like elite, elite numbers. I think he's more of a 65 to 70 point guy. And the big question becomes, does he get that number one power play spot for a full season next year? 
I kind of like his odds, given what Sheldon Keefe seemed to be looking at over the course of uh, over the course of his tenure with the Leafs. So I'm pretty optimistic about William Nylander moving forward. Yeah, well, so uh, as the season ended, the last game that we saw, they were going with Marner, Matthews, Nylander, Tavares, and Tyson Barry. So stacked top power play, and really, who's going to bump him? I guess maybe the exactly. like Andreas Janssen was someone that was getting top power play time previously back when Babcock was the coach. But you're right, like that doesn't seem like that's going to be a thing going into next year. So, yeah, I also would lean to the second half Nylander being the real one. Though, yeah, you do point out that he uh, got a lot more luck, like a 19% shooting percentage in the second half versus 12% in the first half. So he could have done a little better with a bit more luck. Though, on his career, he is a pretty high percentage shooter from what I recall, like not last season. Last season was terrible. Before that, he was above 11 all the time. But yeah, the 19 to end this season, that probably won't last. So again, probably we're saying he's going to land somewhere in the middle. I want to find someone on this list Ben of either players who did better who did worse that actually had the same shooting percentage because sometimes <laughs> it just looks like all of this can be explained by shooting percentage but it'd be interesting to find someone who actually changed their game in a big way and didn't just you know get more of the shots they took go into the net so we'll have to see as we follow along uh, any other thoughts on Nylander before we move on uh, not particularly. I do have a prediction for looking for a guy who's not based on a shooting percentage uptick, and that would have to be time on ice. And so I think that's a really useful function of this spreadsheet, Elon, is just looking at these guys who gained their coach's trust or who earned a big uptick in deployment. Those are the guys who are going to be undervalued because they weren't hitting their full stride over the full season. And those are guys that you should be looking to target as you get into draft season. Definitely. Yeah, time on ice is a big thing. And yeah, you want to try to predict which version of the season is the one that's going to represent what their ice time is going to be going into next year. Maybe the biggest thing, right, Elon? Like, honestly, I think that fantasy hockey value is either opportunity or talent and opportunity can pretty much entirely be measured by time on ice. Yeah, and the fact that there was a new coach that came and all of a sudden Nylander exploded mm-hmm. and obviously Sheldon Keefe is going to be the coach again going into next season. So that just makes you think that it's reasonable to expect a similar deployment next year. I don't see who's going to take it from him. Uh, so yeah, and I guess, Ben, now before we move on to the next uh, green player who improved over the second half of the season, why don't we take a second to thank a sponsor for this week's episode of the podcast. And those are our friends over at Roman. We've been talking about them a little bit over uh, the past few shows and as we've discussed as an American it takes a long time if you want to go see a doctor we're talking like 29 days to see a doctor in major US cities uh, I don't know what the stats are right now I'd imagine it's difficult to get you know not urgent treatment but if you're dealing with a condition like erectile dysfunction or hair loss or something along those lines you, you want treatment ASAP and that's why our friends at Roman have spent years building a digital platform that could connect you to a doctor licensed in your state all from the comfort of your home. Roman makes it convenient to get the treatment you need on your schedule. You just grab your phone or computer, complete a free online visit, and you're going to hear back from a U.S. licensed physician within 24 hours. That's fast. That's like how long you had to wait to get a point from Nylander in the second half of the season, as opposed to the first half of the season where you had to wait a lot longer. Uh, By the way, if the doctor decides the treatment is right for you, Roman's Pharmacy can ship your medication to you with free two-day shipping. You also get free unlimited follow-ups with your doctor anytime you have questions or want to 
adjust your treatment plan. With Roman, there are no commitments. You can cancel any time. So if you have any sexual health concerns or hair loss, like check out the site. There's a lot of things that they offer you. Check out GetRoman.com slash Carlson, and you're going to get a free online visit and free two-day shipping. Of course, we're talking about Eric Carlson, the namesake of our podcast. So GetRoman.com slash Carlson for a free online visit and free two-day shipping. And thanks to Roman for sponsoring this episode of The Short Shifts. Okay, Ben, next guy on the list. I'm sure when people saw that we were dropping an episode of Players who did a lot better in the second half than the first half, I think a lot of people would have guessed that we're going to bring up this guy. We have to talk about Kevin Fiala, who overall on the season had a huge breakout, 54 points in 64 games. That's almost a 70-point pace. But this was definitely a tale of two completely different seasons. Like, at first, Fiala was in free agency in a lot of leagues. Like, I recall, like, I think people drafted him thinking that he was going to get a decent role in Minnesota but then as time went on a lot of people ended up seeing him maybe added him for a couple of games and dropped him when the Wild had a good schedule but no one could have predicted that after his 20 points in his first 30 games he would go off for 34 points in his final 34 games just like Nylander become a point per game player out of nowhere but that's what happened Fiala was a beast and if you go closer to the end of the season he was just getting better and better and now going to next season like I'm stumped like I still think of Kevin Fiala like I don't know what to think to be honest like going into the year i thought oh it'd be great if he could put up like a you know 60 point pace that would be awesome but now all of a sudden we're looking at someone who was pacing at a point per game like getting points game in game out so is like is this the new real kevin fiala should we expect that next season he's just going to continue going gangbusters like he was for the last few months of the season i mean yes and no uh I think the big thing with Kevin Fiala, and first of all, it's worth mentioning that this is an example of a guy who was at 13.1 and 13.2% shooting in the first half and the second half, but we saw a huge jump in ice time, and what we really saw with Kevin Fiala in the second half of last season is he became the guy in Minnesota. They were looking to him to make veteran plays, and he became the goal scorer for that team. And so, you know, when he went on that tear towards the end of the year, obviously the the shooting percentage got a little whack in the last, like, let's say 15 games or so. But, I mean, I think that we saw him emerge as the playmaker on uh, Minnesota. Sort of like, I guess the example would be like a Philip Forsberg, where it's like, you're not looking for who's on the first line necessarily. You're looking for who's playing with Kevin Fiala on the Minnesota Wild lineup. So I think that Kevin Fiala, an easy 70 points plus next season. That's where I'm at. I don't know if you're as bullish as I am. No, I mean, I feel like I have to agree. And it's like, I know now we've talked about three players and all of them were saying, oh yeah, the second half was more realistic. And, you know, maybe that's like the bias that people would assume we'd have is what we saw most recently is what to expect. But like you say, it's like all of a sudden he got this deployment, he got the extra ice time. And plus, I like the fact that his shooting percentage was the same. His on-ice shooting percentage was the same. The only thing that really changed aside from ice time was he went from averaging two shots per game in the first half to 3.4 shots per game in the second half. So we're talking like, over a 1.5 times increase in his shots, which is obviously going to lead to more goals. Plus, like we say, with more ice time, you have a better chance of getting assists. So just he put him, he was in a situation, I I would say he put himself, I guess he and the coach put themselves in a situation to be successful. And I don't see why that would change. Like you look at the line combinations also, and he did eventually become a top line guy, I guess. Like he ended the season playing with the likes of 
I'm seeing like uh, Eric Stahl and actually Gerald Mayhew. I'm not sure <laughs> what happened there. I don't know who that is, but like he was also playing with Stahl and Parisi in the third quarter of the season for a bit. But you know, at the start of the year, I mean, he was actually getting good line mates. It is kind of weird how everything changed for him because he didn't change that much. I guess he wasn't on the Stahl line. He was playing with Parisi and Koivu at the start of the season. But yeah, I guess the, the extra ice time, the, the power play deployment and just... It all just really worked out, and he went to show everyone that he is a star player, and people have been expecting Kevin Fiala to break out for a long time. He's still only 23 years old. He's a former 11th overall pick back in 2014. I guess it took him a little while, but I'm, I'm with you. I think he's a star. I'm curious to see what Brian thinks when we talk about him. He generally takes a little bit longer to turn around on some of these players who have never really done it before, but like, how can you ignore how amazing of an end he had? And I actually, I think that Brian will be on board with Kevin Fiala just because we've expected it for so long and the numbers are not starkly unsustainable. Like, I remember tweeting about this before the season got cut off and just obviously those numbers were ridiculous. You know, the just the, the February-March splits where over 20 games he was, you know, top 10 in points or whatever it was. But... I think when you look at a larger sample, 70 points is totally sustainable for a breakout guy at the age of 23 who looks like he can, you know, the plays that he was making were those that, you know, an actual, like a stud makes. And Kevin Fiala just had the profile. He was looking like a walking highlight reel for Minnesota in the back half of last year. So that's why I'm willing to buy in. I, you know, I use the Philip Forsberg comparison in part because I don't think that the ceiling is particularly high in Minnesota. You know what I mean? Like no matter what, he's still going to be on a, a top power play unit with, you know, I'm I'm rushing to mention defensemen in my head first, which is never <laughs> a good sign as far as the teammates that you're going to be, that you're going to be on a top power play unit with. So I just think that, yeah, that, that 70 to 70 point player, like he's somebody who's going to need to be drafted in all leagues next year. And that's so far from where I was in my head with Kevin Fiala, like even in January. Yeah, I'll be interested to see like what his ADP is and what other people are projecting him for next year. I guess maybe one thing to be concerned about, let me know if this is a concern for you, is everyone he plays with is super old. Like Crazy <laughs> Stahl, like Zuccarello, I guess, once in a while, like mm. Miko Koivu. Like at some point, he's going to have, I guess like, he did seem to be carrying things just fine on his own this season, but these guys are going to get even older. Oh, Ryan Suter over on defense. I mm-hmm. guess on the plus side, I guess we have our Joel Erickson X and our Luke Kunins and our Matt Dumbas of the world so hopefully they can pick up the slack somewhat as these older players start to fall off who knows maybe alex galchenyuk still has something left in him uh but yeah that's maybe something to be concerned about but to be honest i'm not that concerned about it yeah and i mean kirill kaprizov should be coming over this is it this year or next year that kaprizov's coming over I'm not sure, but I know that people are really big on him, those prospect experts. By the way, oh, sneak peek, we're going to be talking to a prospect expert, Cam Robinson, on the next Sunday show. So uh, that's definitely a player that I can ask him about, and I'm sure he'll have a lot more to say. But yeah, yeah, he's supposed to be a big name, and that's going to be great for Kevin Fiala, for sure. Absolutely. Okay, so let's see. Who should we talk about next? I'm trying to find someone that maybe will decide that the second half wasn't sustainable. Here's a name that I'm curious to hear what you think about. How about Jaden Schwartz? He had a good season overall. Again, I guess like all these guys, not as good as they could have been if they just had their one half of the season pace last for the whole time. But he ended with 57 points in 71 games. That's a 66-point pace, which for Jaden Schwartz would have given him his second best season of his career. Or actually, no, third best, I guess. He's he's actually had a pretty 
long career. He started back yeah. in 2011, 2012. He played seven games and he's been going pretty much full seasons ever since, except for all the injuries. So not full seasons, unfortunately. But this year, he, again, a very big difference. In the first half, 24 points in 35 games for a 56-point pace. And then a 75-point pace in the second half, 33 points in 36 games. I have one theory that comes to mind as to why Schwartz went off. I think it's probably going to have something to do with Ryan O'Reilly jumping to the top line to play with Schwartz and Shen, and which, by the way, killed David Perron. He's someone we could talk about as a red boy on the next episode, even though I feel like the answer is going to be the same. Like, one gained an awesome center and one lost an awesome center. Uh, Do you think it's as simple as that, or was there something else different in what Jaden Schwartz was doing? I mean, could we not talk about each of them now? Because I agree with you that it is kind of the that is kind of what this all boils down to is deployment in St. Louis. And there really has not been for a while now, like an anchor line on that team where they're like, this is where we're putting all of the offense and we're we're going to roll with it off this, you know, they've they've bounced back and forth, whether it's power play quarterbacks, or whether it's, you know, who plays with Ryan O'Reilly, or where Vladimir Tarasenko, who, who's centering Vladimir Tarasenko, really, really unstable in St. Louis, as far as deployment goes. I think that, you know, in general, I I feel like I'm copping out here. But yeah, like 60 to 65 points seems like a totally reasonable pace for Jaden Schwartz to me. I don't really buy into the like 75 plus power point per game levels. Um, A big thing for him this year was the huge uptick in power play points, right? Like the first time he's ever hit 20 power play points in the season. And so it is positive to see him get nearly three minutes per game. But I'm not really sure that, you know, he's not a trigger man on that top unit. So I don't really buy into the nearly double digit power play goals that that we saw from uh, from Jaden Schwartz this season. That's fair. So maybe the 75-point pace that he put up at the end of the year might be a little rich, but we used to think of him as a potential 70-point guy, and Mm -hmm. I do think that, say, if, uh, for David Perron's sake, that Ryan O'Reilly goes back to play with Perron, that should be fine, because we were hoping that Tarasenko will be healthy, and we could get back to Tarasenko, Schwartz, Shen, which is like a line that we've seen be so, so successful, but someone always seems to get injured. Usually it's Schwartz. This season it was Tarasenko. So imagine if next season the three of them could just play together for the whole time. That would be great for Schwartz. And I think he could approach like 65, 70. I think he's definitely has the potential to be better than he was in the first half where I said he was on a 56 point pace. And he's someone that I wonder if you're gonna be able to get him at a discount in drafts or not. I guess we'll have to wait and see. Hey, Ben, okay, let's talk about a player on your favorite team, the New York Rangers. And then we could do a couple defensemen to end the show. Uh, Chris Kreider really uh, wasn't looking like he was going to get a good contract extension after the first half of the year. He was having a pretty disappointing season, only 18 points in his first 33 games. That's a 45-point pace. Not even a 50-point pace for Kreider. But then he, again, totally just changed his performance in the second half and was like a different player. He got a point in almost every game, 27 points in 30 games before he got injured. That's a 74-point pace, close to a point-per-game pace, right? And now going into next season, now the Rangers have locked him down long-term and they have these studs coming up. And I'm trying to figure out if that's like good news or bad news for Kreider. Like if Kako gets better, is that good? Because Kreider has an extra good player to play with. Or is it bad because it's someone who can maybe bump him from a top line spot? But you got to imagine he's going to end up playing with either Zibanejad or Panarin. So how bad could it be? And I would think he holds the top power play. But you probably know more about the Rangers than me. So yeah, from what you saw this year, and I'd imagine you watched a lot of Rangers games. What happened for Chris Kreider to go from being a nobody to a somebody? And also, what do you predict for next season? 
Yeah, I think the big thing that we would not have predicted a year ago at all, and not that Panarin was even on the Rangers a year ago, but, you know, bear with me for the sake of this conversation. We were all expecting Panarin and Zabanajad to play together heading into this year. And then the thought was, if you put Kreider on that line, then you really don't have anyone else for Kako to play with. You know, Philip Heedle also needs some, some good reps. Like, there are a lot of up-and-coming players on the Rangers outside of that big three. So they start out the year with Panarin and Zabanajad on the top line, and they have Kreider playing down with Capocacco. A lot has been said about how Capocacco had a very disappointing rookie season. A big part of that was that first stretch, though, where he was playing with Chris Kreider. They had abysmal numbers together. That line looked putrid. I'm not ready to jump off the Capocacco train long term just yet, you know, in keeper or dynasty leagues. Obviously, the value is still there. But in, you know, switching up that top six and splitting up Zabanajad and Pranarin, the Rangers were able to reunite that Kreider, Buchnevich, Zabanajad line, which has been excellent for the last couple of seasons. And, you know, a big thing that I think really helped here is all three of them took a great step forward this year. Uh, Pavel Buchnevich has never been more effective. Obviously, Mika Zabanajad had a crazy shooting percentage streak that really elevated his season. And then Chris Kreider, I think the main thing with Kreider is he always has these stretches in a season of, you know, 25 games where he just goes ballistic. Typically, though, that stretches in October and November, and then he cools off for the last, like, 50 games of the season. Few Usually there's a few games missed to injury in there. You got to mix in. But, yeah, I think with Chris Kreider, he just he had his big stretch towards the end of the year, which really, you know, helps pump up his fantasy stock. I think I would be a little wary of him for that reason, just because we've seen him have these stretches of prolonged brilliance, and then he slumps back down. But, you know, if the KBZ line continues to exist, and the Rangers have no reason to go into next season not running Kreider with Buchnevich and Sabanajad, Uh, I think that that line can be very successful together. So, uh, you know, the other thing is he's always going to be in the net front spot on that New York power play. Like, he's by far the best player in that spot. So no matter what, I think in New York, where he now has a long-term contract, he's going to be on the top power play with two fantastic players. And I think he's, he's locked into the top six. So... I'm in I'm in for Chris Kreider, you know, like 65 points over a full season would be his ceiling just because we've started to buy into him at higher than that at different times. And he's shown us that he really hasn't been successful at maintaining that over a full season. But yeah, at 60 to 65 points plus bangers. He's a great player in uh, in peripheral heavy leagues. Yeah, for sure. Great because of the peripherals. Yeah, I just, it's really hard for me because like he was also in these same great deployment spots in the first half of the year when he was pacing for only 45 points. I think he was also playing with Zabana Chad and he was on the top power play. And like you said, he seems to be a streaky player and a big number that jumps out on this spreadsheet that I made, which again, you could get yourself at keepingcarlson.com slash splits. It'll also be linked in the show notes. Uh, 18.8% shooting percentage in the second half of the season. And he's generally a guy that's around like 10 10 to 15, which is pretty good, like to be, you know, an, a double digit shooting percentage guy on average for your career, 13.8% for his whole career, but 18 is still a little high. So I think we could almost for sure say he's not going to be the 74 point guy next year that he was in the second half, mm-hmm. but definitely also better than the 45. So you said like 60 to 65. I think that's probably a good range. Uh, maybe I would lean closer to 60, but again, Zibanejad seems to be really uh, turning on another gear in his 
abilities, and that obviously would help Kreider as well. So we'll have to see. And plus, he's never had Panarin on the power play with him. So there is that as well. Uh, so, Ben, how about a couple defensemen now to end the show? I want to start with someone. Here's a player who, like, basically doubled his point phase between the first half and the second half. I'm talking about John Klingberg over on Dallas. He started the season. He was getting dropped all over the place. Klingberg, you know, drafted high. Everyone had high hopes for him. In his first 28 games, only 10 points. It's a 29-point pace. He was doing absolutely nothing for you. You were only holding on because you were hoping for better things, not because he was helping you. But if you did hold on or if you grabbed him out of free agency, you were definitely rewarded. 22 points in his final 30 games. That's a 60-point pace in the second half compared to the 29-point pace in the first half. Averaged out to a 45-point pace, which is pretty good, but kind of disappointing. We've seen Klingberg, though, have these 60-plus point seasons before. So the optimist in me would say probably the second half is more realistic because that's the version that we've seen more often. Of course, the pessimist in me would say that I believe there was some concerns about Miro Haskinen, and Haskinen was bumping him from the top power play at times. Also, Dallas was a weird team for a lot of the season. They had a lot of trouble scoring, and so that would make me a little bit concerned about drafting Klingberg as a 60-point guy for next year. Where do you land? I am a pessimist on John Klingberg. I think the main reason is, as you mentioned, just the power play opportunity. It looks like what Dallas is rolling with is pretty much a split. And maybe John Klingberg gets the 55% of the power play split, but I don't think that's enough for him to put up the 65-point paces that he was showing us over the course of a few seasons there. I think Miro Haskinen has arrived, and I think that really severely handicaps John Klingberg's uh, fantasy value. I think the other thing with John Klingberg is that Dallas as a team is not scoring very much. They're just not playing a very high event brand of hockey. And, you know, if they're not going to be scoring a ton and, you know, that was kind of their thing for a few years, right? Was just up and down the ice. They were scoring a ton. The other teams were scoring a ton. Now they're very happy to, you know, play these 2-1, 3-2 games where Ben Bishop steals a win or Anton Hudobin, you know, whoever's in net that night for Dallas is playing, you know, amazingly. And so I just don't buy John Klingberg getting up into that 65 point club again, because at least until Dallas changes up the way that they play because right now you have to bake in any, uh, an amount of you know suppression in point production for any of Dallas's stars look at Tyler Sagan look at Jamie Ben look at Alexander Radulov all of these guys had a severe decrease in their ceiling year over year yeah that's true though like Klingberg did, like I said, have this 60-point pace for 30 games to end the season. So obviously something was working out, though I'm looking at some of these underlying numbers, and yeah, there was a big change in some of his more, I guess, luck metrics, if you want to call them that. Like he went from a 38 uh, IPP in the first half to a 61 IPP in the second half. Which is half. insane for a defenseman, right? Right, yeah, I'm seeing in his career, it's usually hovered around 50 for the last three seasons. So this was definitely a big jump to get up to 60, getting in on a lot more goals than you'd expect. He also had a higher on-ice shooting percentage uh, in the second half. But at the same time, like, yeah, I guess the thing is that you, have, you still have to be wary. Like, even if you say he got a little lucky and maybe that 60-point pace that he put up in the second half isn't reasonable, you might still try to convince yourself that he should be good for 50-55, but then you do have to worry about Haskinen coming in and, like you said, about Ben and Radulov and maybe even Sagan not being as good as they were, like Joe Pavelski not being as good as we hoped that he would be when he got to Dallas. So, yeah, I think for all those reasons, I'd probably be drafting Klingberg 
closer to a 50 point guy or maybe even a 45 point guy and we saw the floor right it's possible he could fall down to being like 40 and below because that's what he was doing for the first 28 games of the season and that was obviously a bit unlucky like he had a 3.4 shooting percentage for the first half of the season when his career shooting percentage is five so you know whatever it's not even that big of a difference so you're not looking for goals with him right yeah i mean with any defenseman really let me pitch you this comparison elon what would you and I, I want you to throw out what you saw from this player this season, but think about Tyson Berry's fantasy value going into drafts last year, where it was like the Leafs are gonna run with Morgan Riley online on power play one. I know that this player has a very good defensive or uh, offensive acumen, but where is the opportunity gonna come from? That's where I'm at with John Klingberg. It's like, yes, he might get some of the power play one opportunity, but am I confident he's gonna be the top power play guy for, you know, the entire season? Hell no. So I, I I really struggle to get bullish on John Klingberg. Yeah, that's true. And I, everything you're saying makes a lot of sense, especially on a team like Dallas, who were expecting fewer goals from than maybe we did going into this season. I liked the second half, but I guess you did point out that IPP really jumps out as one reason why you shouldn't expect a 60-point pace to continue, because he's not going to be able to hold up that number. Okay, one more defenseman, then we'll close out this short shift, which I guess is still a bit longer than a normal short <laughs> shift. So I'm trying my best here. Uh, Charlie you're McAvoy. You're doing great. You're doing great. <laughs> Let's go to Boston. Charlie McAvoy was a guy who was available in free agency for me in the Cuckoo. He was drafted. And then I remember when he was dropped, I thought, wow, that's a pretty big name to be dropped. And then I grabbed him and then I held him for a few games. Then I was like, wait, why am I holding this guy? He's not doing anything. Through 35 games on the season, he had zero goals. 12 points that's a 28 point pace worse than even Klingberg was doing for the first half he was only averaging 1.3 shots per game which isn't helping you he basically wasn't helping me in any categories he doesn't like hit or block much either at least he definitely wasn't in the first half of the season but then at some point someone grabbed him and he was a lot better in the second half of the year in 32 games 20 points for a 51 point pace in that second half which is really awesome for a defense and that all of a sudden makes Charlie McAvoy into a stud and this is in a year where he still hadn't taken the top power play because Tory Krug is there uh, Krug will be gone next year I guess unless uh, Boston signs him but he's a UFA this summer though we did see Matt Grizzlick take over whenever Krug would get injured it would be Grizzlick on the top power play but it's just hard for me to imagine Matt Grizzlick being the Boston top power play <laughs> defenseman all season so I think there is maybe some upside for McAvoy but it's also very heartening to see that he could even put up these points not getting top power play time so what happened in the second half of the year which one looked more reasonable to you the first half numbers or the second half numbers I I mean for me I I've always been a Charlie McAvoy skeptic and not because I don't believe in the player but because I don't believe in the offensive upside and so that's sort of where I'm at with Charlie McAvoy is I just I can't buy into this 58% IPP in the second half. Like, if you look at the full season numbers, he's been around 39% three straight years. That to- I totally buy into that number. The 5-on-5 shooting percentage as a full season, all right around 9%. I buy into that number. The points per 60 over the full season, 1.2. The last few years, 1.4. So to me, when you look at the full season numbers, you see that Charlie McAvoy was on pace for 39 points over a full season. No big uptick in power play time on ice. No big uptick in power play points at all. I just think like that's just who he is. He's a 40 to 45 point guy. I'm not getting suckered into the second half uh, split. 
Yeah, I think that's the answer, right? This 57% IPP in the second half, getting in on more than half the goals as a defenseman, that's not usually getting in on goals. like He's not like Eric Carlson of old. He's Charlie McAvoy. So yeah, that's probably something that wasn't sustainable. So I agree with you that it won't last unless, of course, uh, we see news that he is going to, in fact, be the top power play defenseman. If like, the coach comes out and is like, McAvoy is our guy, that's <laughs> it. Kind of like what happened in Colorado, right? At the start of the season, uh, Bednar was like, what do you, you know, someone asked him, what are you going to do now that you've lost Tyson Barry? He's like, well, we have Kale McCarr. And that was it. It was like a stamp statement that McCarr is going to run the unit. So if we hear something like that about McAvoy, then obviously we'd have to reassess. But for now, I think that I'm with you. He did take more shots in the second half, which was nice. He was taking 1.7 shots per game versus 1.3. Generally, though, not a huge shooter. Like this was the first season where he had over 100 shots. So I'd be definitely concerned. He, He hasn't played any full seasons. So he's paced for maybe around 100 each time. But yeah, he's not a big shooter. So uh, we'll have to see. I'll be very interested to see what his opportunity is next year if Krug is out of the picture. Uh, So, Ben, I guess that does it for this episode of The Short Shifts and the first half of our recording session. Uh, Next time we chat, which will be in five minutes, but will be a couple days for the listeners, we're going to talk about some players who started strong and then really flamed out at the end of the year. And we'll try to figure out what happened and what to predict next year. This is a lot of fun. And by the way, this is your show. So why am I doing the closeout? You do the closeout. But that's what Lewis does. He does the closeout. So I will have to approximate my best Lewis Ezekiel and do the closeout for tonight's short shifts. Basically, you know, shouts out to you, Elon, for for coming up with this great idea. Shouts out to Dabber Hockey, where I've done basically all of my research for tonight. But most of all, shouts out to the Ezekiel family. I miss you, Lewis. Uh, All the best to the family. Um, We are very excited to get you back on the Keeping Carlson Podcast Network as soon as possible. Until then, though, buddy, keep those shifts short. What's the other thing he says? Uh, sticks on the ground and shifts short, something like that? <laughs> he definitely does not say sticks on the ground. <laughs> okay. Is it, is it sticks on you? Keep your stick on the ice? I don't think he said... That's red-green. There's keep your something-something and your shifts short. I thought it had to do with the stick. I'm not sure. Okay, we'll do some research, and maybe we'll be ready for the next <laughs> recording. <laughs>